0: Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Very British Futures, a podcast dedicated to travelling down some of the lesser-known byways of British science fiction television. I'm Gareth Preston and I'm joined by Nigel Anderson and Brian Clark. Nigel is an actor and director for both stage and film, as well as artistic director for the Manchester Indie Filmmakers Group. Brian, writing under the slightly longer name of Brian M. Clark, has been a comics writer for nigh on 40 years. He's also very much involved in theatre, film and magazines. We are inevitably going to feature some spoilers for this show in order to discuss it. The programme is available on DVD from Network Video which also contains a marvellous series guide written by Andrew Pixley, which has been invaluable in preparing this episode. Today, we're starting with a family drama serial, which was both popular and quietly groundbreaking in its day, but until recently has not been generally available to rewatch. Pathfinders in Space and its sequels, Pathfinders to Mars and Pathfinders to Venus. Pathfinders in Space was itself a follow-up to the 1960s Target Luna, which introduced the Buchan Island Space Project, its founder, Professor Wedgwood, and his three children, Jeff, Valerie and Jimmy. An unusual chain of events leads Jimmy to become the first man in space and to orbit the moon but it requires the efforts of radio operators around the world to bring him safely home. This series, which starred, amongst others, Frank Finlay and Michael Craze, is sadly missing from the archives. The Pathfinder series was produced by ABC Television and ran for 21 episodes at Sunday tea time between September 1960 and April 1961. Interestingly, the third episode of Pathfinders to Mars, The Hostage, was transmitted on Christmas Day, 1960, and was one of the highest-rated programmes of the day. It was initially devised and produced by Sidney Newman, the Canadian television executive who'd go on to become head of drama at the BBC, and directed by the already very experienced stage and TV director Guy Verney. Pathfinders was written by Malcolm Huke and Eric Pace, with some additional contributions from biographer and journalist Ivan Rowe on the Venus episodes. At a time when many children's drama series were still adaptations of classic period books, Sidney Newman had been keen to produce a modern adventure that was both exciting and would encourage children's interest in real science and engineering. And if that phrase sounds a little familiar, that's because it was his initial starting point for his later creation, Doctor Who. A sci-fi drama initially intended to inspire its young audience about science and history. Hello and welcome to the show. And uh, I think the first question, which I'm going to direct towards Brian, is how did you first encounter Pathfinder?
1: It's odd, really, because I was born in 1954. So with this initially airing, 1960, 61, I don't think I I sat down and watched it on the first airing. But before picking up the network DVD set, I was aware of it. So I've seen it somewhere. And I don't know if this was repeated in the later 60s or if I've just seen episodes, various science fiction conventions I've been to. But I had memories of it. But in the best science fiction tradition, I don't know where those memories came from.
2: Well, um, for me, I've binged watched the, the series in sort of preparation for this uh, podcast. Um, but I've got to say it's like the Mamma Mia of, of, of science fiction because it, it's so bad, it's good. Um the golden rule for me is never say it's science fiction because people obviously want to hate it before you've even seen it. But there's something very endearing about this series and um the the connections with with the sci-fi programs that came out afterwards in the sixties uh, to the seventies. Um, you know, there's so many people who were involved in Pathfinders who went on to do things like Doctor Who. Um, You know, um, there's a lot of the Terry Nation um, sort of dramas that came out, the tripods, all of these series all have connections back somewhere along the line to the Pathfinders. Um, I can't help but admire its ambition when you compare it, because it is the sort of start and the basis of what was going to lead up to Doctor Who and if you think about the actual history of it the timeline Sidney Newman was only uh, well released from ABC in 62 and Doctor Who starts in 63 so um, you know he was the man that that really sort of came along and started to Shape things up for British TV. You know, he said, you know, we want more action. We don't want this very stilted style of acting. We want people to be more natural. And he gets people to engage with the characters. You can't but help. By the end of uh, of the series, you're literally cheering these guys on to succeed. <laughs> it's incredible that but somebody watching it now you, you've got to have comparisons to to the science fiction we have today and the and the um, production levels we have today. but it keeps you watching. you know, i I quite have to say there's like good and bad moments in it. But hmm. um, overall, I don't think they had as many edit uh, cuts. skin Doctor Who, they only ever allowed four edits per episode. Yes, it was
0: planned to be filmed live. In fact, if possible, they only had the one cut, which was for the ad break. And otherwise, they tried to just go straight through the first act and then straight through the second act unless something catastrophic happened. Well,
1: that's that's exactly as I understand it. They filmed it as live. And only if a piece of property fell down or somebody just completely messed up their lines would they stop. So you are left with these uh, polystyrene boulders just falling out when, when they shouldn't or microphones dipping in into shots or people moving around in the background getting ready to appear in the next scene. We, we will, I assume, get onto to this later. There was an episode with deliberate Mistakes in it.
0: Well, now you've brought it up. Well, well, it's worth mentioning it in in the in one episode. Episode of the, seven uh, of Venus. Thank you very much. Yes, episode seven, the uh, the Valley of Monsters. Uh, they deliberately put in eight errors, including booms waving into shot and people to see, as part of the as an experiment to see if children noticed it and it, uh, and it sort of took them out of the drama. And in this case, it turned out uh, largely it didn't. Although the children did sometimes notice them, uh, they generally accepted it as part of uh, making a TV program. In fact, that was Ooh. one of the findings they found out, that children were actually a lot more sophisticated in their understanding of how a television series is made than perhaps the grown-ups gave them credit for.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Uh, yeah, personally, I hadn't heard about Pathfinders until I bought uh, Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who, The Early Years, which has uh, a chapter on uh, Pathfinders in Space. which So it quite intrigued me from his uh, synopsizing. And particularly the character of Harcourt Brown. It's very much it's a programme of its of its time, I think, looking at it now. It's um there had been there had been other science fiction shows on before it, particularly children's. Um there was a popular series which I remember you, Brian, I'd like to hear a bit more about the the Lost Planet.
1: Which right. ultimately well, ran
0: to six to six books
1: Yeah, and I have two of them here Which I know is is useless for uh, audio But at least Brian is, uh, is showing me a couple
0: of uh, Yes, there's a couple of splendid looking uh, hardbacks With battered dust covers here Yes,
1: well used mm. And what what I loved about reading A Lost World Which is firmly juvenile fiction Is Its idea of space exploration was still World War II RAF, and it was really just a small group of people. In this case, um, a family relative just builds a spaceship, and they hear about this planet, Ahesis approaching the Earth. They go off, and they land on it, and they have adventures, and they do that in subsequent books as well. But it was this idea that it was almost like taking a taxi and one of the amazing things in the lost planet books is when they arrive there one of the first things they do they ask the lady going along with them to prepare them some breakfast and they have bacon and eggs fried on this uh, (laughs) planet and there's a there's a similar reference to that in the early episode of Pathfinders in Space, because when they land on the on the moon, they also sit down with tin cups to have a hot drink as, as to make their plan.
0: <laughs> also, I draw on the work of Robert Heinlein, the American sci-fi author who wrote a, a series of books in a similar way yeah. to Sidney Newman, intended yes. to kind of inspire young teenage boys
2: and girls again again totally useless on a podcast (laughs) 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 but i have about my person uh one of his early books which is the red planet which again comes under the juvenile um range that he was writing in his early years um and um uh, it, it is very much like Angus McVinnecker in in style. But I think America took science fiction far more seriously than we did in Britain. Um, Mm. That's just my general opinion of it. Uh, But Certainly Heinlein's books are all about very
0: competent, capable individuals who seize their own destiny and pull themselves up by their bootstraps.
1: That's, and, and that's, that's, and one, and that. that's one of the big differences, though, especially 50s and 60s sci-fi between America and the UK. UKSF tended to veer on the dystopian and it dealt with the problems of scientific progress. And American science fiction tended to celebrate um, scientific yeah. progress. And it's interesting yeah. that both Heinlein and Matt Vicker came from an engineering background and they saw space mm. travel as an engineering issue. And and if you solve mm. the issues of building, there's also another reference with UK science fiction and juvenile fiction, and that's Patrick Moore, who wrote oh, dozens and dozens of juvenile SF. I'm trying to think the name of his main character. Was it Kelso? I, um, I'm I do have the
0: books. Um, I have I- read one of his, Patrick yeah, I have read one of his sci-fi novels, but I cannot for life remember the title. My main memory of it was my slight annoyance was that the hero kept falling unconscious at well, moments yes. of drama. Having yeah. just been taught in English about that is a terrible way to <laughs> that's something you should avoid in writing. Yes,
1: it's almost like <laughs> and then I woke up.
0: <laughs> and then they yeah, exactly. The and then I woke up school.
2: Again, I I would compare uh, Patrick Moore's style of writing to a juvenile sort of scenario um interestingly he wrote a book which is quite difficult to get hold of now it's called the wheel in space which so happens to be a doctor who story in 1967 <laughs> right, yeah. or, or something like that um but it's all about espionage and people trying to stop this uh, wheel in space being built and and it carries on and i feel that Somehow, 60s and 70s literature really didn't move on a great deal in its its content, whereas mm-hmm. the American writers were writing about, usually about, I mean, if we take Starship Troopers, which is another of the sort of highly um, mm-hmm. uh, sort of classic, it's the most misunderstood film of our generation. Uh, but mm. it's not... Particularly, when you start to read it, all right, it's in a spaceship, they're being parachuted down to this um, site where they're going to absolutely obliterate all these aliens, Um, but it doesn't particularly feel like a science fiction novel. But it is misunderstood because there's so many sort of hidden messages in it. And this was the the theme running through a lot of 60s and 70s TV. If it wasn't about, um, I suppose, discrimination and, you know, uh, other topics, I mean, uh, Greenpeace, you know, things like that. Hulk was classically writing about issues. I can see that this was a bit of a... I can't understand why there was a big gap between Hulk writing Pathfinders and him coming on board for Doctor Who because he died, I think, yeah, in 79.
1: Yeah,
0: just because, obviously, he he works with Sydney Newman. I can only assume he had better offers in between <laughs> <than> the Pathfinders. <laughs> they might have um, paid uh,
1: more, probably. But Well, he went constantly. on to... A, to Avengers, didn't he? Yes, he did. I
0: think that could have been. He could have been too busy with the uh, Avengers and No Hiding Place and other sort of uh, policeman mm. shows for a while before coming back for the Faceless Ones. Now, whilst Malcolm Huett and Eric Pace, they weren't. They didn't come from an engineering background. Uh, they certainly did their research. They took it uh, quite seriously. They read a lot of New scientists and other books of of the time and certainly pathfinder space is more is determinedly more in that that kind of that phrase hard sci-fi trying to take it seriously of course the trouble with taking it seriously is that it it rather show in sharp relief when it's incredibly silly unfortunately because on one level it's very serious we get a lot of conversations about the mathematics of firing rockets and how they need to get the planets in the right uh co- they, they can only do it at certain times so that the planets are near enough and and how rockets are made how rockets work and all that so there's all that research is there between the characters but set against that is the fact that the the book island the uh, rocket group is a pretty shambolic uh affair in many ways uh, and the contrivance <laughs> the contrivances think, yes. because it, the number involved. of times
2: they go out of that control room gareth is incredible and just leave <laughs> yes. the phone on <laughs> yeah <laughs> leave everything a bit to chance isn't it but but that's that's, that's drama that's drama gareth you know that you is it elaborate that's... can't you
0: that, that that's the need to get um the children involved mm. unfortunately it leads to some extreme contrivances that professor Wedgwood
1: just does not believe in the plan B satellite sort of like. yes. just just like his involvement with um, dr who Newman's um, when when he wrote the series Bible for this he wanted this to be an educational series and his stipulation is the only Locations they can go to Must be within the solar system He didn't want invented planets He didn't want fantastical mm. things happening um, And mm. That in itself Unless you fantasise it by going Underground or finding Mysterious jungle worlds It limits what you can actually do With it It does, it's certainly for a children's
0: series must at this time Man was still, t- Yuri Gagarin Would not be going into space for another year yet. So for most of this series, manned spaceflight is still its still an unknown. Nobody knows what will happen.
2: Well, it's there. romantic, it's isn't major... it? Well, it is a romantic vision of, of what space is. And that's where the literature of the 50s hmm. comes in, really, because it's this romantic view that, you know, space travel is so easy. You know, we can reach other planets and other solar systems. And we, we know now that we, we can't without a great deal of Technological advance or finding some way of propelling ourselves quick enough through space to get to other solar systems. You know, let's just make a comparison here, uh, if we can, because Ray Bradbury, uh, who is another of the great sci fi writers, wrote The Martian Chronicles. Now, he wrote that in 1958, um, and yet he set it, you know, in a very surreal Mars. it wasn't until the 1970s, mm. I don't think, before it became a, a miniseries. Um, mm. And I don't think anybody understood yeah. it when it was aired. It's, it's never yeah. become the cult classic. Yeah. No,
0: he was very much aiming
1: this at,
0: you know, the man in... He was very keen on what he called plain-speaking drama.
1: Yeah. Can, that can I just, just say that? On that interface of science as it was known then and science mm-hmm. as it has turned out... Um, and here's here's a... Here's a spoiler alert for uh, the third story, Pathfinders on Venus. So you might want to go forward about a minute here. But Wilson is on a secret mission. And we don't find out till episode eight what his secret mission is when the Russians land. And his secret mission was to do with telecommunications. And it's only a year after this that Telstar goes up. Right. So, so mm. you're in a world where you don't have satellites and telecommunications and that. And mm. so he's on the threshold of it. But within a year, he's overtaken by real
2: world events. And yet incredibly, there are some very sort of precise scientific um, reasoning coming out, from, especially in Pathfinders to Mars. I thought the actual depiction on Mars was pretty good. You know, it was very mm. rocky. It was, And they're talking about the storms, the canals, you know, and all this. I thought, despite that they're going around the set about 15 times, you know, and trying to <laughs> angle it so it looks slightly <laughs> different each time, um, it was a pretty good description or a visual description of Mars for 1960. Even, um, with,
1: even with the plastic inflatable lighting yeah Don't yeah i notion. thought that was a nice
0: <laughs> i thought that was one of the nice extrapolations and there are a few yes. extrapolations which science fiction still does to this day in that there might be some lichen we're going to slightly exaggerate it and have it as giant monster lichen yes uh although nicely it's it's still kind of acting like lichen the only reason it, it seeks people not because it's In any way evil or sentient or anything daft like that, it's simply seeking humans because we're full of water, as Mm. uh, as Mary Meadows points out, which is a nice another nice. Except she
1: then points out a few minutes later that they're full of water.
0: (laughs) Mm, That's (laughs) it, because it
1: becomes their their source of water.
0: That's quite clever. In fact, I think the lichens are an interesting. A good way of bringing in a bit of threat to the series, without having without having to cheat and stick some Martians. I think some actual the, Martians the
2: genius of that. Newman is not to have any monsters in it as such, mm-hmm. because obviously we've talked about the American influences, but I mean um, most monsters on in sci-fi films and serials was a man in a rubber suit running around chasing people, and infamously, Newman says to Verity Lambert, no BEMs, no bug-eyed monsters. And he's he's sidestepped that, because let's look at the performances of the the individuals, Gerald Flood, etc. They do it with such straight faces. I can't you know, there must have been moments when they were trying not to laugh or sort of break down in front of the camera, but it was such um, a polished performance, and the the actual setup of each uh, episode, I think, is very much in a theatre style. But um, we're in a sort of position now where we've got the luxury of, you know, very nicely equipped studios. We've got better equipment. Uh, more sophisticated technology. Back then, these people were doing it in old cinemas, old theatres, which had probably been, um, you know, damaged in the war. And, you know, I think very close to us, actually, unfortunately, it's no longer there, is the um, is a cinema in Didsbury. And they did armchair theatre from there for the ah. first couple of years. And that was an ABC um, production, and I think Sidney Newman was involved with that. But... He was involved. He didn't create
0: it, but he certainly involved in revitalising yeah. it and bringing in a lot of new yeah. young writers like Harold Pinter into it. So that was, I think, that's another one of his. Big achievements. So yeah, talking about the uh, performances, there's no doubt Gerald Flood in the first one, and it's not surprising that he's the one who stays. And Professor Wedgwood is quickly invalided out for the rest of the series because it's. I mean, it's a very British step up on there. Come on, cheer! We've got to stay positive, chaps.
1: Kind of.
0: Can I just say in
1: in that first series, uh, Pathfinders in Space. Um, he plays the part of a journalist, and I love the scene where they've landed on the moon. And one of the first things he does, he takes out his typewriter and starts to type up his <laughs> news report to send back to his newspaper in London,
0: which is <laughs> splendidly dedicated to his uh, to his cause. It's interesting; they they largely kind of drop the uh the journalism side of him yeah. in in the subsequent story there's a bit about he's sending a radio broadcast back at the start of pathfinders to to venus but he he pretty much becomes a science hero yes. uh, and a and uh a, a test it turned out in target luna i didn't realize this until i read the notes that he had actually been a a pilot and uh an engineer Working on experimental planes and then went into journalism.
1: They do they which, do mention bah. that in the first yeah. episode of Pathfinders in Space. They they say about him having this background, which is why he can come along on the trip.
0: It's one of those stretching of facts, yeah. Anyway. In
1: the same way that sort of
0: Professor Quatermass He's a rocket expert, but he soon becomes an expert on whatever is needed to be talked about. Yes. Later yes. on, and it's that yeah. element. where they do—they kind of stretch Conway Henderson a bit, so he becomes it's a bit of an all-purpose uh, space hero yeah. to some um, extent. Although, definitely not in the Flash Gordon sort of. He's very much a British, that kind of British.
2: I'd just say about Wilson's class. uniform. Um, He's he's got it, you know. The, for the costumes that they had, were they're quite. Let's put aside the space helmets because it looks like two <laughs> coat hangers stretched across um, a crash helmet. Um, this was purely a practical thing, as I understood it, because they could never get the sound levels, uh, you know, adjusted. But. Um, mm. You know, um, Wilson has this collar. Now, he's dressed very, I don't know if it's Book Rogers or um, Flash Gordon, but the the style of collar with the studs on is very (laughs) reminiscent of it. I was going to say about, in, in Pathfinders to Mars, they seem to have got ski suits on, which I suppose in 1960 would have been looked quite spacey and um, mm. you know they do seem to have a had a little bit more money on on the Pathfinders to Mars um, series um, it does feel
0: like a, a slicker series from from the start like you say the yes. the rocket ship the the rocket set is a bit sleeker and more yeah. more solid and certainly it gets over at the in the first one, because in the first Pathfinders in space, when the expedition gets in the rocket, they look like they go and go for a walking holiday in yeah. Northumbria. Yes. it's all chunky knit <laughs> sweaters.
2: But again, there's a great imagination to it, and one thing I really liked about Pathfinders to Venus is that on the first episode, the, the, there's a sort of they're in the observation room, and you the the camera zooms in through the observation hatch. Now mm. for that. Period uh, with the mm. the bulky cameras. That was a snick operation, especially if it was being done live. You know, to get that mm. smooth transition. Yeah. Even today, it's difficult. Um, but on the latter end of that series, um, when they're walking through the jungle and it's been sort of um, well, smouldering from the volcano eruption, even the branches are smouldering, and I found that very eerie and very effective. Mm. Um, mm. I, I, know... I think Guy Verney does an excellent job You know, especially when
0: you consider The strictures that he was working under yeah. There is quite a bit ambitious He gets in spacewalks Like I said, the Martian landscape Is quite in, impressively put together And he manages Even though it's obviously a pretty small set He manages to keep finding new ways To point the camera at it Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean It's one of these things They were restricted, weren't there? Because, I mean We're fortunate, as I say, we've got bigger studios now. We've got lighter equipment. We can put uh, people into smaller spaces and make it visually look a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people like Gerald Flood and all the others who came into the series were all from theatre backgrounds. And Unity Theatre is where uh, Eric Pace and Malcolm Hulk met. And this was a very controversial... um, I think it was, was really a good thing that that they met together because they knew they wanted to try new writing, new ways of doing things. And yet there was an old guard, if you like, saying, Oh, no, 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 we don't want this. We don't want to see this. So television was the natural transition for a lot of theatre people uh, where they had more scope. Mm. You know, they were doing different things. They weren't, if you were in a rep, um, repertory theatre, which sadly doesn't really exist uh, much in this country, um, you were probably given the same roles week after week with just different lines. Mm. I'm not mm. saying this is entirely true of TV, but ultimately Unity Theatre was breaking uh, the mould, and later on I mean, you you get people like uh, Joe Autumn, um, because 68 is the pivotal moment where things... People are allowed to do exactly what they want. They don't have to have approval. The only approval you need is from your audience. Right. Um, again, in television history, 53 is coronation year. People start buying TVs, people are buying into this. So, I mean, Pathfinders is a, a breakthrough in terms of it was exciting to watch, you know, it was different. Oh. People hadn't seen this before. Just, just coming back to the point
1: you made, which is very good, about TV stopping, more, more or less, there were still some experiments going on, in thirty nine and coming back in forty five. One of the huge advances that took place in that time was aerial reconnaissance, that we needed photos of bomb damage and we needed target photos. So the work on lenses was huge during World War II. And that greatly helped TV and film when when they came mm. back back online in the post-war period. and and their lenses were much sharper, much much better. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. I'd never thought of that
2: before, but I think yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. That does. In the in the first series, Jimmy is there's a bit of uh, separation overlay, and it's done twice. Mm. It once, um, and again, in, in Pathfinders to Mars, they tried the same thing. Obviously, it was a bit too much for the technical crew to handle because uh, they sat on the chair and there's something floating about. And you can mm. obviously see that there's a bit of, um, um, I suppose, disturbance where part of the leg is missing. Yes. Because you can't. It doesn't <laughs> entirely work. But for that period, 1960, it was absolutely amazing yeah. for a viewer to watch because mm. they do that
1: they, they do that during the spacewalk sequence yeah.
2: when they're going between mm. stations yes. we, we, we forget yeah, yeah, yeah. we just take it for granted that it's an easy thing it wasn't an easy thing in those days to do um yeah. you know so I I again I, I came into it thinking oh um, my goodness you know this is really not going to be very good I think where pathfinders to venus falls down a bit is having cavemen again you you've got to sort of suspend belief and think well okay you know they've got to have some other element to keep the story bubbling along um yeah definitely
0: venus is the one where they kind of even though apparently they did a lot of research as they always Mm. tried to but at that time not a lot was known actually about venus uh, at that time, we hadn't sent any probes there. We just knew what we could see through our telescopes. So they definitely take advantage of that, the fact that we didn't know a lot about Venus. And some people did genuinely believe that there might be jungles yeah. down there. Yeah. I don't think anyone seriously suggested dinosaurs and cavemen were to be found yeah. on Venus. There is, there but, there is uh, an
1: interesting scene. I think it's at the end of episode five when we first see one of the Venus jungle people. And it's shot looking into a cave. And this big, hulky, furry um, Vesuvian steps into shot and stands there with his arms down, looking very menacing. And it it reminds me so much of the final shot in Unearthly Child, where they land on this strange Mm. planet. And we just get the outline of this Stone Age man standing there.
2: It you like you must have, yeah. You must have thought that Anthony Coburn must have thought, "Oh, that looks good." <laughs> 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 Nobody'll ever know because they weren't into repeats no, in those days. No, it was no. broadcast once, and that was it. Uh, it just it, didn't happen. It's um, interesting that the
0: restaging of that scene at the start of the next episode is notably more dramatic. It's yes. uh, They kind of took advantage of the time, so when you're at the start of the next episode, he's really dramatically backlit at this yes. sort of shambling sil- silhouette in the cave mouth is uh in fact i know you notice that on quite a few of the cliffhangers which of course were restaged mm. live yes. is that they often take a bit of advantage to just give it a bit of a a polish the lichens yes. notably one episode the, at the end of the cliffhanger they're basically just tubes yes. by the start of the next one we've also got the silly foam right well,
2: <laughs> <but>, uh, yeah <laughs> It's just become a Looking staple good. of science fiction. Every seems, you know, if you don't get the you know, um, <laughs> but there's so yeah. much that we think, oh, you know, we'd never do that again. But you know, it does crop up occasionally in, in stuff, you know, and um, there's there's continuity errors, but you know, you can forgive all this because the the actual group of actors are pretty. You know, they're pretty solid stuff, aren't they? They, they can,
0: really I was going to ask you, what, what,
2: sorry, I was going
0: to ask you what, 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 what did you think of the child actors
2: over the course of the uh, series? Oh gosh, well, they say never work with children and and animals, but um, uh, they've. I can't honestly say that they've they've gone on to greater things, but um they are very much out of the acting school of fifties. Yeah. And I
0: was about to say they're very stage school. They yes. all they all sort of talk they're all very well spoken, particularly Margaret, the uh, Conway's. Uh, yeah. Who's introduced in Mars? She I thought, are you related to the Queen by chance? Because she has (laughs) she's especially in the first episode. I think she she mellows out a little bit over the episodes.
1: But in that first episode, her voice is outrageously posh. I'm not quite certain I'm pronouncing the surname, but it's Stuart Gildotti, is it? Um, who plays Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. The guy can't say a line without shouting it. Everything is ultra dramatic. You took
0: it out. I was just about, I'm glad you raised that, Brian, because yes, his delivery on nearly every line of, yeah, somebody at some point, he had a drama teacher that said, Wedding Doubt, shout. And he goes through it. Yes. (laughs) He goes through it being very, very urgent all the time.
1: But
2: where's the sugar
1: (laughs) for my tea?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I'm really sorry about that. You say that, but you see Gerald Flood always poses and he looks directly at the camera and says his line. Goes, Look, Mary, we're in a bit of a tight spot here, but we're going to get through it, old girl, you know. Um,
1: <laughs> I found the girl playing Kiki, who doesn't have many lines. She, she is the Vesuvian girl that, they, that they, 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 they come across and befriend and desert to this <laughs> child molester on Venus at the end. But anyway... <laughs> Um, and <laughs> she, had, she had very few lines, all of them made up words, and yet I thought she had a great presence. She did.
0: I think in some ways she, she gives the most naturalistic performance mm. I think out, out of anybody, any, any of them. I was slightly worried at first, I thought, have they blacked her up, but I think it's
1: more well, the case she was meant to be dirty.: and I think they had. Be- but then she becomes lighter, especially in the face, in mm. a couple of episodes later. Yes. Mm, I did I always
2: love costume departments because they never look um sort of um too dirty or too scruffy um everything slightly tailored and sort of fitted <laughs> and'm and looking at Kiki's <laughs> sort of furs who were slightly tailored and well fitted <laughs> um you know as much as the costume department said oh no 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 I'm not having anything that's going to show my work up we've got to have the best <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it it it's slightly it does sort of think, well, it could have been better if they'd just done this or they they did just done that. But I'm sure that you want to talk about Harcourt Brown because he is such I do a want villain. to talk about Harcourt Brown. He's yes, such I, a villain.
0: <laughs> he is it's funny. He's in some ways the most interesting uh, character uh, played by the Vet, Marvellous veteran character actor George oh, Clovis,
2: Clovis, I think it is, yeah. and a Manchester lad, way. So.
0: Yes. yes, yes, he is apparently yeah. so. Yes, Sorry. right. Who uh, it as as Harcourt Harcourt Brown, who, for a start, he he smuggled. His his power is that Booken Island is incredibly disorganised. So he's, he's, it's almost unbelievable the way he's able to smuggle himself aboard the spaceship. Basically, by <laughs> it's, it's, he sort of, he kind of uh, arrives. Nobody has, seems to ask him for any ID or anything <laughs> or anything. They just come, immediately shove a space helmet on him and tell him to get in the ship.
1: Well, it's because he well, arrives too late with 15 minutes to blast off. Yeah, it? That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah. It's science
2: fiction It's another one of those
0: credibility stretching moments. Must must admit, Harcourt Brown does bring a bit of conflict and danger that probably the series needed at this point. Uh, the first series everyone pretty much, apart from Hugh yeah. Evans yeah. Who, who has this moment when they land on the moon you know, just before they land on the moon and he sort of says, oh, he has this kind of panic attack he has to be talked down from. But apart from that, everyone largely cooperates and gets on, and they're all a team under Professor Wedgwood. Uh, so bringing in Harcock Brown, I think it's an obvious device to bring a bit of conflict into it, first by the fact he's an imposter, and then by the fact that he is a, quite a dangerous conspiracy nut, as it turns out who has an obsession
1: with life and other planets. You do kind of give the game away, though, by calling the episode The Imposter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's it. I, possibly it works in a sort of bomb under the table kind yes. of uh,
2: that the audience knows about. Yes.
0: But... Um... I mean, it's, it's
2: interesting how his development of the character comes up to sort of Pathfinder's to because he starts... They obviously get to Mars. a bit of a spoiler alert here. No life other than the uh, plastic balloons which wrap themselves around pokes, And he has to concede that there's no great city. By the time he's got into the ship... Um, <laughs> Moon Rocky whatever number four, and they've gone on to Venus. He's convinced again there's a civilization here, but finds a bunch of cavemen. And you you've got to think, well, did they, they did they really think his character out as such, or was it just that he was good enough being this sort of rather sinister character who you didn't really trust? Um, keeping a a child locked Mm. in the compartment of the rocket for several weeks you know, um, that's another interesting thing, I mean you never saw them eat or drink much or... or, That (laughs) is true There is, and you thought
0: they might have found a thing to put in some um, those squirty bottles and had a bit of space food but I suppose again it's that we're in the very very early days we those squeezy bottles with the space food we haven't really been invented yet, yeah. because yeah. Uh, so but that's why we've just got the teas to have. On,
1: on the question of life on other planets, I do find it rather odd that in Pathfinders to Mars, there's this huge debate about life on other planets, and yet in Pathfinders in Space... Had already found artifacts on the moon and a spaceship on the moon, which they Mm. piloted back to Earth. So they know (laughs) there's been another presence, whether it was early humans, as they suggest, or another race. It's not a hundred percent decided, but they know these planetary visits take place. It
0: is strange that that never gets raised again, because that is an amazing discovery. That is seismic. Um, so it is a little bit surprising that it's not referred to again. I, I found that really intriguing. I think if I'd have watched that as a as a young lad, I'd have found that 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 would have been the memorable part for me. This we get these clues to this alien civilization that they discover on the moon, and yes. uh, and these just these little clues about what they were. We know they were roughly humanoid shape. In fact, we find the uh, a body of one so we know they're roughly yes. humanoid but uh, we don't really find out much about them and but it is yeah it is a little bit surprising that everyone is so quick to dismiss harcot brown aboard because there is a little bit of evidence that there is life on no. other planets his his journey actually and it, he is a splendid character because he is utterly untrustworthy and dangerous even at times, like I say, he takes someone hostage. He more than once tries to sabotage the expedition for his own selfish, uh, and he's is, is dangerous in a way because he doesn't really have a big master plan. Once he's aboard, the, getting aboard the rocket is probably the most clever. He's like a child in some ways. Uh, everything else is kind of a, an
1: improvisation. Well, he turns out very much like. Cavour in H.G. Wells' First Men in the Moon. Mm. Because once he finds out there's a civilization, he's worried about humanity destroying the civilization when they over-exploit it. That is a a nice
0: development of it. In fact, Venus does give him this moment and and I remember watching him thinking oh, I wonder if he's going to change now because he gets this moment where he comes to the He's been looking for this this city on venus that he glimpses early on in the series from the ship he finally gets there and finds it's basically a big mausoleum. there's nothing there except dead cavemen that they've been burying there and this is just this moment and it's probably the only moment when he really kind of the card drops and he's sort of broken and realized you know no there's no there is no great civilization waiting to cure all, all our problems. And mm-hmm. and then he, he picks up this new thing about Venus being the unspoilt frontier mm-hmm. that he needs to protect. Uh, going back to Martian Chronicles, one of the early astronauts who lands on Mars has a very similar kind of conversion, and he quite rightly predicts how Mars is going to be taken over and uh, strip mined and... The rest of it, and like, rather like uh, Harcourt Brown, try- tries to set himself up as a defender of the planet.
2: This is a recurring theme for a lot of science fiction, though, isn't it? The stripping of, of, of resources, uh, you know, uh, you know, decimating other worlds. Yeah. um, And we're in a situation now where we know that our own resources are drying up, you know, we're looking for renewable energy, etc. And it must have been very much in the minds of people in the 60s, less than the 50s, you know, where they were forecasting we would not have these materials forever. We would have to go on to other worlds, seek out new, you know, places to live on. And... I suppose that was the basis for a lot of uh, books. Like, I'm trying to desperately think of a, one that isn't the Martian Chronicles. But, <laughs> um, it, it does seem to be that there's either the world's been affected by drought, um, you know, or other factors, or it's been hit by a comet, and, and we're all sort of uh, underground living in shelters. And again, the Pathfinders always give hints of these great cities. Well, again, Harcourt Brown's always hinting at these great magnificent buildings. Isn't it? And he's mm. looking up at, um, I think it's before the Valley of the Dinosaurs, and he's saying, Yes, there it is, the great city of Venus. You know, this is where we're going to find this intelligent life I've been telling you about. And it's just a book, you know, a pile of rocks. Probably just mm-hmm. to, for a lot of people now want to watch the series. There was always that hint of a natural disaster which has propelled them to go out and seek out new worlds. One thing I would like to talk about is is Trevor Duncan, uh, the music for Pathfinders, because, quite honestly, it's like um, a, an earworm. I'm
0: glad, you, know, I think, you, know, I'm glad you, you you brought up the music, actually. What what leapt out at me about the music is... Uh, is, is a lot of the same tracks are used in Quatermass. Yes. And later on in Doctor right. Who as well, in early Doctor Who.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think it was Adrian Bolt, wasn't it, who was uh, conducted, the, you know, um, Marge, you know, da, 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 you know, he was coming in. Uh, but then uh, Trevor Duncan's theme for um, Pathfinders was introduced into that, and yes, it becomes the main theme of Pathfinders. And it has a, a great title, because I looked, it's not the other, it's called Challenge of Space. It seems <laughs> right. to sum it up quite neatly. Until well, he that,
0: has that opening swoop like a rocket taking off. That yes, opening.
2: Mm-hmm. yes, yeah. and it, it does go on for several minutes. The actual um, composition, and um, it really is a good piece of of, of composition. Episode
0: just a, a little bit on 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 Pamela Barney, aka Professor Mary Meadows who's uh, an interesting example of a female scientist who's never criticized for being a female scientist, which you notice a lot of women who hmm. appear in 50s science and 60s science fiction, they always have to have this scene where they said I had to choose bet- between being a scientist and being a woman. And uh, happily, uh, Mary Meadows Mary uh, avoids this.
2: Yes, I mean, it goes back to what I said earlier, which is stereotyping, and and a lot of uh, actresses were stereotyped into the same roles. Um, Fortunately, um, Mary is not one of them, and she's quite refreshing to see. Um, You know, in the 1960s sci-fi series, um, the dynamics of the relationship (laughs) is quite incredible, because at the end of it, he says... Mary, do you think we could perhaps work together? <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and that's about as far as it goes, um, other than a quick peck on the cheek. But, you know...
1: But, of course, that, that, that quick peck on the cheek, that, that kiss was one of the written-in scenes... For the Cambridge research, because they wanted to see right. how kids responded to kissing. Right. Yeah. Now that,
2: yes, yeah, that and is that, interesting.
1: That, that's the only reason it's in there.
2: But I mean, the f- females and males, um, especially with a lot of American TV, the, the the executives would decide what was appropriate for a sort of middle class, um, dare I say, white family watching. A cosy tea time uh, show. Uh, so racism, sexuality, any any hint of um, I suppose <laughs> anything going on in the bedroom was strictly out. Speaking of unsung heroes, I think someone else who
0: deserves a mention is Derek Freeborn, who was the model maker and special effects ah, uh, right. uh, on them. Uh, who was who brought in? Apparently he started off a business making models for conferences and exhibitions and prototypes and that sort of thing and then through a a contact was a mutual friend of of Guy Verne's was brought in uh, to the series and I think he does a pretty good job considering that they ask him I mean they ask him to do obviously space rockets of various kinds planet landscapes of the Moon, the Mars, and Venus. Uh, it gets then. There's a sense actually they get more and more ambitious. I think they realise they can push him a bit, and that he can yes. they can rely on him
2: to deliver. Because, so yeah. you get. i being so, probably what we would describe as freelance. I mean, he probably wasn't privy to any of the um, a sort of screenings and was told we want a lunar landscape we want something that looks like a bit like a jungle with mountains in the back and he would just have to supply it and hopefully it would mm. tie in it, it, it's a classic case of not many model shots of this period match up with the actual footage that it's inserted to yeah but mm-hmm. having said that i've got to say that the lunar landscape was incredibly effective. You know, it looked very Mm. eerie. As The opening shots, it does look really good. Mm. Um, Then you cut to the studio, and you're thinking, "Mm." (laughs) hmm, not quite (laughs) the same yeah." But nevertheless, it's impressive. (laughs) What
1: what I thought was very interesting, and to me added a great visual dimension to it, was having the spaceship set designed vertically rather than horizontally. Mm. horizontally, yeah. so we kept moving up and down with the characters yes. and I thought that added a lot to it.
2: I mean, having that, that is... two-level thing was very, and the camera mm. again, sort of, you know, j- well, you'd have a jib and you'd be moving yes. it up and down. Um, it, yeah, again... That it, is very well designed. Though. And through yeah. the, when they come and land on Mars for the first time, and they're going down the ladder and that shot of them sort of going through yes, onto the surface, do. I thought that was yes. very effective. Yes. So I mean, clearly they had. It didn't lack ambition, you know. It was, you know, people saying, "Oh well, you know, um, they just did it and they just sort of, you know, rolled it out week after week." But people actually did think these things. Really, you know, they. It's, oh yeah, it, they did sort of like. There is, I think, that's one of the appealing things
0: about the Pathfinder series. There is a lot of thought gone into it, even mm-hmm. if it looks a bit stagey. There is thought gone into it. All has a practical dimension. There's no, there's no room here for superfluous fins or no, no. on on spaceships or anything like that. Everything looked like Although, as they imagined space
1: rockets were going to be like. There is there is one one cheat. I believe. I I could be wrong in this, but I don't think so. Early on in the Venus story, they need to join up with a space station, which miraculously becomes the Russian spaceship by <laughs> by the last episode. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a nice um I quite, and I quite like the way they subtly establish the alienness of the spaceship that they find on the moon. Yes, just by yes. slightly altering the design, so it's all triangles. Yes, as opposed yes. to the circles of a uh, human spaceships. Yes, so which is a nice. A nice little design touch, I thought, and also just a little mention. I thought the rather charming dinosaurs. We mentioned the dinosaurs. I think, I, I think uh, pretty much the Czechoslovakian the dinosaurs.
1: dinosaurs.
0: The Czechoslovakian dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. From from the marvelous uh, journey to the beginning of time. What it translates right. into yes. English about three boys who go on a a magical river journey back into the past, and they discover dinosaurs. And Mammoth and all sorts Mm. of
1: creatures And And oddly that film was made in colour
0: It was, it's actually recently been Released on Blu-ray In a new new restored edition Uh, But they they use uh, So they just take a few, bought a few Clips from it But it's a rather nice I'm I'm a big sucker for anything stop motion animation I'm a big fan of stop motion animation And uh, It's a nice I think that perks up The episode rather nicely
2: Yes, because yes, there's not yes. many um, pre-filmed inserts, is there? Up until Pathfinders to Venus, there's very few pre-filmed inserts of any oh. other material. So um, it's like a bit like everything but the kitchen sink in Venus. Mm-hmm. They're throwing everything at it to see what works and what doesn't. Again, as you say, there's some very effective lighting and very sort of good camera techniques. Um, oh. but I feel we can't... Leave it here without saying Hamlet. Oh yes, we have yeah. Who, tell us about who, tell us
1: about Hamlet? Who, which is the guinea pig. But for a couple of episodes only, he gets his own screen credit. It says Hamlet as himself. And then they stopped then they stopped giving him a credit.
2: Because he was getting too big. <laughs> his agent wants too much money. I, I, I think Hamlet might have been substituted a few times because he seemed to be going <laughs> um, sort of bigger and sort of, you know.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. He, but yes, he knowing, is... knowing the lifespan of uh, of guinea uh, pigs, that does not surprise me. Yeah. So we're coming to the end now of our little trip uh, looking back at Pathfinders in space. So I was wondering if you had any sort of summing up. I think I'll come to you, Brian, first
1: I find it a totally Engaging film Well, a series of series If you like (laughs) Um, I love them from start to finish They're cranky, they're predictable They're Woodenly staged There's nothing You won't know before you watch it That you know after you've finished Because you've seen it all before somewhere else but it's just, it's just a damn good mix of juvenile science fiction from the early 60s, and I love it. And if I was giving it marks out of 10, I'd give it 8 out of 10. This is my second time watching my DVD collection, and I thoroughly enjoyed it again. That's
0: brilliant. And Nigel, you've, got you, you've only seen this quite recently. Yes, so... I'm, a, I'm
2: a newbie to it all, really. Um, well, I mean, I, I've got to say my favourite moment of of Pathfinders is uh, Henderson saying to Jimmy, ''Oh, and by the way, Jimmy, ''here's that screwdriver I promised you ages ago. (laughs) (laughs) ''I'm handing him a very ordinary-looking screwdriver.'' Gee, thanks, Mr Henderson. It's the best. And pops it <laughs> into the top of his pocket. Now that's British, isn't it? That's real class. You know, having all those pens and screwdrivers just neatly lined up. It's It's got a charm to it which you can't describe. It, it's, it, it is of its period, but you can sit back, you can have your cup of tea, your hobnob, and you can just relax and... As I said, at the end of it, you cheer them on because you want them to succeed. Um Yeah, we could have had... um I think it comes to an end quite abruptly. I think there, there would have been a... I'm sure there was another series that could have come of Pathfinders. We were planning one. Yeah.
1: yeah in- uh, interestingly,
0: did- Gerald Flood and uh, Stuart Guidotti did go on to play very similar characters in three more futuristic thrillers produced for the tea time slot. There was Plateau of Fear, City Under the Sea, and Secret Under the Sea. So although they actually they are playing different characters, they're playing a a news reporter and his photographer
2: in those. I think what's lovely about it, it it was created at a time when we had a lot of optimism, you know, and people did have this lovely Sort of notion of what space and space travel was going to become, and you know, how we were going to be living in these fabulous cities and traveling in these marvelous spaceships. Um sadly, it's not happened as we speak, but who knows? Somebody could be watching this podcast or listening to it in the future and saying, my word, weren't they wrong? Yeah. Look at us now, <laughs> looking at us in this beautiful, gleaming city that Harcourt Brown told us about all those years
0: ago. I think my favourite moment is dialogue, is at the start of Pathfinders in Venus, where Harcourt Brown goes slightly shamefacedly to Conway Henderson and goes, look, uh, what are you going to... Say about me when we get back to earth and something. <laughs> and Conway sort of says, Well, you did try and kill us, but you, if you behave, tish, tish. But, but I'll tell you what if you behave from now on, I'll stand by you yes. <laughs>
2: Was that, didn't they have a moment in James Bond when he says, why do you want to kill me? Why do you want to make me kill you, Mr. Bond? You know? and all the, that's what makes a fantastic buddy, because he doesn't go quite over the top. Uh, you know, he sort of plays it straight, and that's the hallmark of a, not only a great actor, but how to play it when you haven't... Let's face it, it's not the greatest of scripts, You know, Mm. they had a very limited uh, sort of material to work with. They had limited time, but they could have gone way, way, way over the top with it. And somehow they managed to keep a lid on it all the way through. And I think that's why it's got this enduring appeal, because it just keeps it at a level that makes it... Almost believable.
0: I think it does stand the test of time because it's well-intentioned and it's ambitious. And for those reasons, I I can forgive a lot of its contrivances elsewhere. Well, thank you so much, Nigel and Brian, for joining me on this inaugural podcast of Very British Futures. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join us again soon. Music by Chatri Art. You can find out more about his music at chatryart.bandcamp.com. Produced by Gareth Preston.